0: Christina Cho, and this is STEAM, the podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. Our episode today is about the immigrant experience. How do you navigate the American education system when you and your family don't really know how it works? Where do you begin? Who do you talk to? We'll talk about being resourceful and learning to ask for help and the importance of community and building a support system to encourage you when things get tough. Immigrants and their children are a huge part of the American tapestry. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about how immigrants weave themselves into our American society and into STEAM fields. My guest today is Dr. Maria Pugo. Dr. Pugo is the Principal Program Manager at Blue Shield of California where she plans, designs, and implements projects and initiatives aimed at improving the public's access to healthcare. Dr. Pugo received her Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from the University of California, San Diego, and both her master's and doctorate in health policy and leadership from Loma Linda University. Her doctorate focused on health policy, and over the last 10 years, she has been working on community health programs. Her career started with Kids Come First Community Health Clinic, a nonprofit organization providing healthcare for non-insured children as a development director. As the development director, Dr. Pugo strategized new ways to obtain funding and cut costs to ensure that the organization was able to provide services for thousands of children. She continued to climb the corporate ladder while pursuing her doctorate in public health, reaching her role as a principal program manager for Blue Shield of California, a multi-billion dollar corporation. In addition to her analytical excellence and business acumen, Dr. Pugo is an advocate for healthcare accessibility for the public at large. During her graduate studies, Dr. Pugo also served as a health policy analyst for the California Health Initiative, where she helped guide the development of proposed legislative bills. Dr. Pugo's passion and goal in life is to make sure people get the medical care that they need and to make healthcare accessible to all. Maria,
1: welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you so much, Christina. That was amazing. What a wonderful introduction.
0: So- Maria, you have a doctorate in public health and you're a public health data analyst. Um, I'm not really sure what that is. (laughs) I have friends who do public health, but mostly in the side of like epidemiology. So can you spend a little bit of time explaining to the audience what you do and what inspired you to choose that particular career path?
1: Sure, yes. Um, Growing up, I always wanted to be a doctor, specifically a medical doctor. I wanted to go out and heal and help as many people as I could. Um, however, during my college years, I discovered public health and completely fell in love with it. It was just what I looked for, an avenue for me to help people, but not on a one-on-one basis for the broader spectrum, groups of people, populations of people that I could help. So I just immediately fell in love with the field of public health. Now, what is a public health data analyst, public health data scientist, um, public health has recently been a hot topic with the emergence, as we all know, of COVID. Um, with, within the last couple of years, public health encompasses a multifaceted approach to study disease as it relates to population and its effects on individual and groups of people. Mm-hmm. So the science comes in as a tool to systematically gather and use research and evidence to better understand disease trends and its impact to its surrounding systems. Okay. When we think about systems, we're thinking about neighborhoods, work environments, okay. Okay. the government, the economy, healthcare, and so on. These findings are generally leveraged to make large-scale decisions in these systems, government, nonprofit, and the private sector. So in essence... I take a Mm -hmm. bunch of numbers and piece them together like you would Lego pieces and create a picture like building a castle from Legos and use that to help determine where should we go next? Where should we move resources? What activities, projects, programs do we need to implement to close the gap that potentially exists and create a healthier population? Mm.
0: Okay, so it's like, you take all the information out there in terms of you know how the disease is spreading or like which communities might need a little bit more help for example like you know back when covid was starting to hit really bad there were definitely a lot of urban communities that weren't getting access to testing and vaccines initially and so then you would take that take that demographic data and be like, oh, wait, we need to start putting some resources out there so that these people are getting tested, that they have access to the vaccines. And so that it becomes, you know, less of a public health threat in
1: those areas. Is that correct? Exactly. And what barriers are they experiencing that they're not accessing? Is it transportation? Mm. Is that money? Is it because we don't have enough clinics, excuse me, clinics, or, um COVID vaccination sites, COVID test, uh, testing sites? What What is the issue? What is the barrier? And let's work together to resolve that.
0: Mm, okay. So now I understand what you do. So like, how did you end up finding this path? Like, how did you end up going um, into data analyst instead of, you know, like the generic, in my mind, like epidemiology?
1: I... Love learning. I've always loved learning. And when I entered the role as an evaluator a few years ago, um, evaluating programs and their efficacy and so forth, I quickly learned that data plays a big, big role in decision making. And it's used as a tool to determine whether a program, project, activity is being effective or it's being effective overall. And I taught myself how to run analysis in SAS and Power BI and, and other really strong data tools and leaned on our analyst team to absorb as much as I could and implement that into my own line of work so I could, again, tell that picture, showcase what we can do, the opportunities of growth, the metrics that we're aiming for whatnot. And that's how I wiggles my way into data.
0: (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. I've been trying to learn data science in the context of biology. And I I realized that, you know, um, despite the fact that I'm Asian and the stereotype is that we're good at math, (laughs) I'm actually really bad at math (laughs) and I'm actually really bad with technology. So, you know, data science is not for me, but I'm sure it's for other people. And I Work with a lot of really brilliant data scientists, so that's super cool. And more props to you. I just that is not something I can do, <laughs> um, but that's awesome. So uh, you and I grew up in the same neighborhood, Hacienda Heights, California. Yes. Yeah, uh, yes, and we went to the same high school. Shout out to Glen A. Wilson High School a. Wilson Wildcats. High school. Mm-hmm. I know uh, people who are like listening to this who are from there, like like oh my god, we're fa- no, we're not famous. We're just you yeah. know, anyways <laughs> (laughs) Small, kind of a small town. But yeah, so I am really good friends with your brother, David, um, who is one of the musicians and sound engineers for Project Steamed. Hi, David. Um, So I used to come over to your house all the time to watch David and his band Azusa practice in the garage. So I just want to like paint this picture, everybody. Okay, Um, I would go out to their shows dressed in like bubblegum pink like I would wear (laughs) like I have one concert. I went out in like a blouse with baby pink flowers and like pink eyeshadow and pink blush. And this is a metal band, you guys. I mean like yep. metal, metal. And everyone's there with that like mohawks and piercings and tattoos and black and gray and dark green. And there I am in like my flowers, and, like my pink cute blush shirt. <laughs> um, but everyone was so nice. And I had such a fun time and I learned how to like headbang and stuff. And I'm like, you know so not in that scene well I don't fit but it was just a very welcoming environment anyways that's just a little down memory lane um so Maria I obviously know you or your family a little bit but I know that you guys have you guys immigrated to the states from Ecuador um so can you like tell our listeners a little bit about that story about how you guys ended up in
1: ecuador and how old you were when you came here yeah thanks for the question i was actually very very young i immigrated here with my parents when i was about two three years old so i don't really remember too much about the ecuador setting other than my trips back there um but yeah my parents uh, wanted something better for themselves and for the family and they took the trip miles away from home and everything that they knew
0: Okay. So I like I forget what the age gap is between you and your brothers. Four years old. Okay, okay. Four Four, years. Okay. four year gap. Four year gap. Okay. So they were all like born in the States and you're you're the official immigrant. Okay. That's <laughs> um great. so yeah, I just so like my husband and his family also emigrated to the United States, but he was a little bit older and um as the oldest in his family at the time he was about 19. He like was responsible for being the family's translator. He had to put his siblings in school, register them and enroll them in the public school system. And, you know do the taxes and all the legal paperwork because his parents English wasn't as good and I know you came here when you were really little but as the oldest child of immigrant parents did you feel a lot of pressure to like be a role model or to like you know help navigate the school system first for your siblings
1: absolutely 1000% I definitely was the translator uh, I helped practically raise my two younger brothers from getting them ready in the mornings, making them breakfast, help dressing them, walking them to school. And yes, absolutely when it was time to jump into college and figure out what our career paths looked like, I not only paved the way, but I went back and helped them uh, figure it out and work through the, through the system. Mom and dad, of course, not having gone through the system themselves, had very limited knowledge.
0: So, yeah. So I remember in high school, so like my, my parents are Korean immigrants. You know, my dad actually came when he was around 19. So he's been in the States for a while, but he never went to college. He went through the U S military to get his citizenship. Um, My mom came later in her late twenties. And then they had me and they had, zero knowledge of getting me through the American public education system. Um, Luckily, my dad's siblings were a little bit younger. They went through it. So there there was a little bit of information there further apart, but nobody in the household to like help me. And I remember in high school, you know, that's when you kind of start stratifying students, right? There's like all the honors programs, the AP, the, the IB, all these programs that are out there. But if your parents... Don't know what those are, you're not going to get registered in those classes, and you might not actually be in the right environment for yourself, or you might miss out on certain things. So, how did you, like, starting in high school, how did you figure out, or how did you get in the right curriculums, or were you just like thrown in and just went to class and then
1: were like, all right, this is it? Yeah, so I have an interesting story actually. Um, In high school, when it was close to graduation, my counselor. I remember have, sitting down and having a meeting with her and she was looking over my transcript and made an interesting comment. She said, wow, you're the first student who has grades high enough to make it to college. And so I paused and I'm like, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm going to go to college or not? I don't really know what she's saying. So that I think that was the, my first um Occurrence where I realized that there wasn't this magical path that, you know, just kind of took you into college and where you graduated and had a career move on. It was left up to me. I had to step in and be my own advocate and research and figure out what are my next steps moving forward, not only finishing high school, but how do I get into college? How do I pick a degree? How do I make it through my classes? How do I graduate? And what does it look like after? How do, we, how do I become a doctor after that? I don't know. But that yeah. was my first occurrence where I I realized that, you know what, I'm on my own, really. Mm. And, and uh, to an extent, I was okay with that. I felt pretty confident in myself and doing my own research and figuring it out.
0: So, you know, I think every immigrant community is a little bit different. So clearly Asian Americans and Asian immigrants have this very big push for their kids to go to college. And I remember growing up, there was a lot of intense pressure from my parents and my community that like, I had to go to good college because, you know, so-and-so's kid went to Stanford. So-and-so's kid went to Harvard. You know, so-and-so is the president of this. It has a GPA of that and the SAT score of this. And what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'd love to do those things. Do you know how to do those things? <laughs> Mom and dad would be like, well, we'll send you to an SAT school. That That's going to get you there. I'm like, yeah, but like these people have siblings who went to college or have like parents who went to college and, you know, they're set up differently for me and how is the Latino community in at least where you grew up, were they also like at least did they have that kind of communication where, oh, these colleges are here and you gotta have this score and that's how you get it?
1: Is it kind of similar or is it different? I would say it's different. In my experience, I didn't have that pressure of, you know, uncle, cousins, You know, friends, child's neighbors, whatnot. Going through this college or doing—I didn't have that pressure. I honestly, in my direct community, I was the first one to go to college, so Mm. there wasn't any of that in my immediate surroundings that I could that could either help me or scare me or whatnot. do so then
0: okay so then when you when you were ready to apply for college you said that you were you were on your own you had to like figure stuff out like you're like all right how am i going to apply so because neither of my parents went through that system they were just like you're going to go to college that's what you're supposed to do i'm like yeah and then they'd be like okay good luck you know (laughs) if you fail it's your fault too it's like well that's not nice um And so how did you like, how did you begin applying? Like, how did you
1: know which schools to look into? I started off at the local college, local community college, because I had actually taken a community college course in my sophomore year of high school. And I... Started. Uh, I made an appointment with the counselor and started asking questions. Look, this is my end goal. I want to be a doctor. How do I get there? What classes do I need to take? When do I need to register? And just really started building rapport with that counselor. And I remember her pulling a really thick book. And in it, it had the list of classes and the time mm-hmm. and whatnot. And yeah, that's how I started. Just asking and asking and just being curious. And using whatever resources I could get my hands on, and at that moment, at that time, it was the counselor at a local community college. Okay, and then, so I think you and I talked about this
0: before, but we share a little bit of a similar experience when it comes to our like college and graduate career, and that we worked our way through college, right? If I understand correctly, so like for me, you know, um, when I was applying for college my parents did not have the financial means to support me and I needed to get financial aid. (laughs) Um, I don't know if everyone knows this, but if you're, if you're unfamiliar, the, the system to get financial aid in the United States of America for college is not all that simple. It's not all that accessible and clear you have to apply for FAFSA it's like this form again if your parents don't or can't speak English very well it's very intimidating although now there's a lot more you know uh, forms out there with multiple languages but it's still intimidating and you have to put in a lot of information Um, and I remember Wilson had a program not program but they did workshops I think a couple of guidance counselors got together in the library sat us down with the FAFSA sheet and was like, okay, start filling it out, everybody. If you need financial aid, this is what you're going to do. And that's how I ended up getting at least my Pell Grants to cover my tuition. Um, but I still didn't have enough money to like live. You know, I had to pay rent. I had to buy food. I had to pay utilities. And California, everyone drives. So I was paying for like in my car insurance, my gas, and my car. I'm like, all right, so I need to make money. And because I didn't want to take out loans, right, because my family was financially already kind of struggling at that time, um, I decided to work full time. And, you know, I talk about this a lot with my mentees, but choosing to work was not probably the best choice because it really, helped, it really screwed up my grades, but it was the only choice I thought I had. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what was your experience, you know, basically working your way through school, like trying
1: to pay your way through school essentially on your own? Um, you just had to do it, I, and I, I think about my journey, and I'm just—I'm I'm, sorry—I'm amazed at <laughs> how far. <laughs> Don't I like I mean, uh, for a moment, I—I was a single mom working three jobs, working wow. on my doctorate, and you just do it, Christina. Like once you know where you're going, you're passionate about your end goal. It just works out. And I would love to tell you in detail, this is exactly how I did it. And this is the formula, but honestly, it just, it just works. I don't know. It just, you just, you make it work. It it just, you know. So what was that
0: like? What was it like to have three jobs, be a single mom and work on your doctorate? Like, I'm sure there were times when you're like, oh, F this, like I'm so done. Or were there no times like that?
1: I mean, yes, there was, exhaustion, um, but, um, I think helping plan out the days and being very strict with what my schedule looked like helped out a lot. And the jobs that I had while going through school were a part of the building blocks that got me to where I'm at. Okay. So I think it's important that when you're, ha- when you have a, when you have a side job or you're working at multiple places, it helps to be passionate about the work that you're involved with. Honestly, for me, it didn't feel like three jobs. It felt like, honestly, I was making a difference in the community that I was working in. And I I absolutely loved it. Um, And I would make sure I wouldn't go out on the weekends or do anything until my whole week was good. All the assignments were done. My reading was caught up activities, everything was done. My daughter was taken care of. Everything was in alignment before I could jump out and have fun. Otherwise, I would just stay in and focus and just take care of it.
0: Wow, you're just like super disciplined. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. So, so then that that what you said right now is like really. I think interesting and important. Um, you said that a lot of the jobs that you had were building blocks for your career and for what you do. And I think that's something I didn't quite understand when I was um, young. So when I was in college, I, in order for me to go to school full-time and work full-time, I did a lot of like weird jobs, right? So jobs that can kind of, you know, mix and match hours so that I can go to class and go to work and study when I had to. So there was like retail, coffee shops, tutoring, whatever I could to fill in the 30 hours a week, you know, so that I can make make ends meet. And the only time I realized I was really spreading myself thin and not using my energy properly was when I met my first mentor who gave me an opportunity to research in her lab. And I mentioned this in the last episode about how we were taking a walk, and she was like, "When are you going to quit your job, like at the coffee shop?" I'm like, "Well, I need to make money," and she said, "No, you quit that job. I'll pay you to do research." And I was like, "You're going to pay me to do research? Like, oh crap! I didn't know. Like, I man, I why didn't I do this earlier? Right? Why didn't I find a job that plays into what my interests are? Later? So, how did you find those jobs, and what were those jobs?" And when
1: I started my master's education, I, in my head, I said, this is it. Like, I'm going to max out on all resources they have. Like, I'm totally committed. I'm on, I'm, I'm good. I'm doing this. So before classes even started, I joined this luncheon that the school had hosted and not knowing anybody or anything, I just, I showed up, I grabbed my plate of food, I sat down and the gentleman next to me, we just started connecting with each other and talking about classes and the school and what it's like to be in this uh, university and whatnot and he actually um, um, brought up one of the counselors or the um, practicum counselors that we had and he said you know she's a really good person you can connect with to get your practicum going because we had a complete certain amount of hours before we graduated from a master's and so I immediately jumped on that and I connected mm. with her, sent her an email, and she connected me with my one of my three uh, jobs that I was working at. It was Kids Come First, the pediatric nonprofit clinic. Mm. And so I started as an intern working okay. for free, working many hours for free. And I quickly uh, absorbed the work. I became a subject matter, matter expert in the work that I did. And then became an employed from there. Um, So that's how I started with that. And then from there, I, again, just kept networking, attended as many meetings as I could, uh, connected with anybody that came in, always had an ear up to kind of hear the nuances and whatnot. So from there, I, I got into the... Uh, California um, Healthcare Initiative Legislative, another internship work that I started there. And then I also worked with the Ontario City of Ontario Planning Department and did more work there. And it just slowly kind of cascaded from there. And people knew who I was and they were actually reaching out to me and asking if I could help mm. or assist or want to hire me. So that's really how I got involved in, in, in all the lines of work that I've done. That I've, um, been allowed to participate in and so it was mostly just myself being an advocate again for myself and speaking up and attending events even even on weekends or week- days when I just wanted to relax And no I'd get dressed and I'd make the drive and at that time it was like 50 mile drive just to Jeez. be there and be around the people that one day I wanted to be I wanted to be one of these people in the future sometime what it looked like yeah. when I don't know but I wanted to so <laughs> So that's how I kind of paved my way through
0: that. You're just like this like hardworking, diligent, <laughs> dedicated, intense woman. And you know what? I'm like all for it. I, like, I just think, you know, I think this is really important for our listeners to hear. It is hard work. It is Thanks. a lot of taking yeah. initiative and a lot of it is realizing your worth and advocating and sponsoring yourself, right? So Correct. I know we talked about this in previous episodes about networking and finding sponsors and mentors. And doing that is very important, but you also mm-hmm. have to be your first mentor, your first yeah. advocate and sponsor. And if you aren't putting in the work, it's it's really hard to make it, especially yeah, yeah especially as a member of a historically marginalized community, yeah. if you are a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're first generation, if you're low income, things are a little bit harder. There are systemic things institutionalized things in place that make it harder and you know I know Eileen mentioned it yesterday oh not yesterday I mentioned it in the the last episode where she said you know you you deserve to be there but you might have to work a little bit harder than the person next to you, and that might be the case. And just I think you're you're being so transparent about your experience about like I did not go out on weekends. Uh, my whole week had to be perfectly aligned in order for me to, in order for me to relax. And you know I think you know it is work. It is work. You know getting to where you need to go will take work. And also a key thing you mentioned was going to a luncheon. You know, I know I have mentees who are like, oh, I don't like to do that kind of social stuff, you know, like, oh, I just go, like, I'm just going kissing ass or like, I'm not learning anything. It's like, you know what? You don't know. You go to those luncheons and you meet people. They might tell you something that is of interest to you and that might help you. So don't just count those social events out. Those social events are there for a reason. They are there for networking. They are there for you to hear about job openings or internship opportunities that can help you get to the next step so you know don't ever discount those like smaller things that might not seem like it's directly impacting the work that you're doing because at the end it might pay off like you know maria got all these like really cool opportunities so you mentioned unpaid internships um and i we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes about you know unpaid internships how important do you think they are, and how? What do you say to those who are like, "Well, I need to make money. Like, I have to make money." Like, you know, what is your opinion on
1: unpaid internships? I think unpaid internships are very much undervalued. I, in when in and when caveat when they are in the realm of where you eventually want to land. Okay. My unpaid internship was at a pediatric health clinic, and my passion was about helping others, specifically in the healthcare world. So this, for me, was a perfect fit, and I was learning, which I absolutely loved—like real-world experience firsthand. Um, Yeah. So I think I think it's definitely worth at least looking into it, just look into Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. It's unpaid. And sometimes it sucks when you can't make ends meet. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if it's something you're passionate about, you'll make it work.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So then um, since we're talking about making ends meet, uh, (laughs) um, I wanted to talk a little bit about scholarships because this is something that I did not really understand when I was going to school. So I knew about like, you know, the Pell Grant. I knew that universities had, you know, merit-based scholarships that are universities-based. What I didn't know and I didn't know until after I graduated from college were private scholarships and private grants that you can get um, if you are, you know, some of them are need-based, some of them are merit-based, and some of them are
1: for URMs. Did you know about those scholarships like as you were going to school? Absolutely not. And I didn't, like you, I didn't know about them until after. I was thinking, wow, you mean I could have, had financial oh. <laughs> help? Like, why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't the university say, hey, heads up, like, this is available. Right. Maybe they did it and I missed it. I don't know. But now I didn't know about it. And it would have been so helpful to have that information because as of today, I'm still paying back my college loans, which is quite a bit. Wow.
0: So, I, you know, this is the, the reason I wanted to do this episode was because I think a lot of times when you are an immigrant or your child of immigrants, there's a lot of information that your parents and your close friends and family might not have that someone who's been here for generations or even immigrant children whose parents have college educations might know things like hey there's these scholarships hey there's these programs or hey you know uh, so and so Is this doctor or so-and-so does this stuff? And why don't you go talk to them and shadow them? You know, I didn't know about guidance counselors, really. Like, I knew we had one, but I didn't know how often I should talk to her. Um, I didn't know about admissions counselors for colleges. Apparently, this is something I learned as a postdoc at Penn, was that a lot of Ivy Leagues and the top tier universities, they have um, admissions counselors that are regional. So, you know, Harvard will have, you know, a regional admissions counselor for the West Coast, the Midwest, the North, South, wherever. And those admissions counselors are the ones you want to reach out to because they will actually remember you. And I had no idea that shit existed, you know? And so, (laughs) I mean, right, did you know? And I have no idea. Exactly. (laughs) So then I have all this information now. I'm like, okay, so I have a daughter now. And I'm like, okay, when you go to college, I'm going to know all this stuff. I'm going to help you. Right. Yeah. But I think this is, you know, when we talk about generational wealth and like moving upwards, it's not just money. It's the fact that, you know, you have this social capital. You have all this information. You have all this, you have a bigger network. You have way more resources that aren't innate. They're like built. And if you are the first in your family to go to college or you are the first family in the United States trying to navigate the American education system, it might not be so easy getting into STEAM fields because you just don't have any social capital to start. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is that you know, given that your parents and those closest to you didn't have all the resources to possibly help you, who did you turn to for advice and career guidance? Um, I know you talked about some counselors, but so like, how did you find your mentors and how did you build your network?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I'm just thinking again, back into my master's program and that luncheon and how I slowly <laughs> became a aware of different key people in the industry. And I think just ensuring that I connected with them, that I attended events where they were present, that I heard them, if they had uh, any presentations that they were making, or they were speaking somewhere to just like, be around them and just learn and absorb as much as I could and eventually I got the courage enough to ask one of them like can I just follow you around like you are mm-hmm. just so amazing and so fascinating like I will do anything I can go get you food I'll get you coffee I'll run whatever <laughs> errands you want me to do I'll you t- whatever you need I'm here just as long as I can be in your bubble please <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. wow yeah that's amazing so
0: you are seriously super resourceful <laughs> I mean okay so this is something we talked about in in the networking episode about like I think there are many different personalities um, out there listening to us right some people are going to be extroverted or uh, just able to like cross that wall like you know break that wall and be like I'm gonna go talk to this person so um, would you say that you're more like outgoing and
1: just assertive or does that something you had to like learn? I think I'm a little bit of both. I am okay. comfortable being on my own and just recharging after a social events. But I also enjoy being around people. Um, for me, what really helps me break through the shell is the end goal. Where do I want to go? Where do I see myself? How, and then how do I get there? Okay. Networking and getting to meet these people could be my way to get there. Okay. So put on a smile, just go out. And it's okay. These people as like presidents or VPs or doctors or whatever, they may seem intimidating, but they're just like you and me. They're human beings that whatever, whatever journey they went through and got to where they're at, that's, that's it. That's, that's it. And if they shut you down or they say no or snub you or whatnot, that's okay. There's so many other people out there that you can reach out to. Um, So I would say just, it's okay. It's okay to be scared. And if you're an introvert and you don't want to do it, I totally get it. But um, when it's done, you're going to look back and you're going to say, wow, that actually wasn't as crazy as I thought it would be or intimidating.
0: So, hey, y'all, like who was sitting there like, I can't do that. I'm not just going to go up to a random person. Like, oh my God, that's so terrifying. It's never, it's like, dating I suppose (laughs) when you want to like go on a date with someone you can wait for them to come to you or you can go and be like yay hey I kind of am interested in you and that might come with rejection and that does hurt but then you know
1: if you never ask then you're losing every opportunity exactly a no No. is just a no it doesn't mean anything it's just no okay yeah now that I know that that's a no just move on to the next
0: Person. Exactly, and I think that's also really important to note here. People are allowed to say no to you too. Exactly. <laughs> people are allowed to be busy. People are allowed to have you know uncommon interests. Maybe they just don't want to take mentors, or they don't have the emotional, mental capacity to be um, a teacher or a mentor or an advocate, and that's okay too. That doesn't mean that they're bad, evil people, or that you know you don't, you're not worthy of their time. It just means that it just wasn't the fit at the time. And there are others out there who are probably better suited and geared to help you. And so it starts, yes, as I said earlier, and as Maria mentioned earlier, it does start with you. You do have to advocate for yourself and go out there and be a little bit vulnerable. (laughs) It's a little bit scary. But once you get it done, you'll be like, oh shit, I did that. I totally went out there and like made this new connection. And so, you know, again, luncheons, (laughs) talks, you know, all those events that you hear about, you get those flyers for, you know they're always looking for numbers anyways they want people there they you know these guest speakers are there because they want to have an audience and if you go to those things and then afterwards you go hey i want to talk to you like maybe there's an opportunity there that'll open up so you know don't be too scared and don't be too shy so another thing i want to talk about was our families so i know that You know, so even though your family may not have been able to directly help you navigate school or your career, how influential and helpful are they and have they been in your success? Because for me, like my mom is my greatest cheerleader. And um, even though she'll say things like, I don't really know what you do, (laughs) like, I'm not sure how I can help you, but I know that it's hard and I'm so proud of you. And she'll give me like little pep talks. And I remember one time in an exceptionally difficult period of my PhD, my mom sent me this text message with this like story of a caterpillar. And basically the story was like the caterpillar builds its cocoon in, in to ready itself to become a butterfly. And when the time is right, it'll start burrowing its way out. It'll dig, it'll fight, it'll wriggle, it'll struggle it'll be kind of painful to watch this like caterpillar trying to get out of its cocoon, but you can't help that caterpillar because that time that that struggle is what's necessary for it to fully develop into the butterfly and then fly out on its own. And so my mom said, you know, I know you're struggling and having a hard time. And unfortunately I really can't directly help you. Like I can't open up that cocoon for you. She was like, because it's your struggle, but I'm here. I can listen and I will celebrate you when you come out and you're a butterfly. And, you know, I like remember reading that story and I was like, <laughs> I needed this story so bad. Um, but like, how about you? Was your family and your friends like that, that intimate support network, how did they help you and how are they helping you achieve your success?
1: That first of all, with such a special story, I love it. And it resonates so close to my own story. Yes, my parents are very supportive. Yes, they had limited knowledge. No, they did not go through the system. They were, however, very, very supportive. Particularly, likewise, like you, my mom was my biggest cheerleader. Again, I don't understand what you're doing or what you're going through, but I'm here to fully support you. And there were times when I would just sit with her and just talk to her about the things that I was doing, and she would just listen. She would just listen, and. She couldn't fix anything or necessarily do anything, um, but she was she was she was one of my biggest supporters, cheerleaders, advocates for my growth and process through the educational system, and now in my career. Um, thinking back, I remember um, so I was in a marching band band in Wilson High School. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was in color guard for a year. I sucked, <laughs> nice. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were great. Um, so when I started playing the flute, I remember I would sit there and she would listen to me play, practice, practice, and tell you. And if you can imagine this very high, squeaking, awful sounding noise, <laughs> you know, and she would just sit there just supporting me through it. And I just thought, wow, like thinking back on it now, like, when my daughter plays the flute and it's just awful (laughs) and I'm like mom you (laughs) sat through that like wow and as she did back then you know when I was in elementary school she she continues to sit there and just listen and support as much as she can and encourage me where she can and likewise like the caterpillar she can't fix things and she can't break she can't help break that cocoon but she can be supportive and be ready when I do blossom out of there Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really wanted to highlight our families a little bit today because I think when you are navigating a new world um, and as parents, I mean, now that I'm a parent, I think I have a very different relationship with my mom. I think I understand her a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, you want so badly to help and so badly to, you know, give everything you possibly can, but then you're like limited. And so you watch by the sidelines. And you know, I feel this way sometimes about my mentees too, right? There are so many things I wish I can do, so many things I can pour into them But I'm also limited in my resources right now, like as a I'm still in my training period. I'm still only a postdoc. I only have a limited salary. I have students who are really low income and they're struggling. You know, they have to like send money back home and it's hard. And I want to be like, oh, I have money here. Let me give you money. But I don't have that yet. And and so I think. When we talk about social capital, we talk about you know people that can really help you in your career, and a lot of times they are mentors in your field, they are colleagues, they are sponsors and advocates, people that might be able to give you funds to help you you know go to school or sit, live in a city for a little while as you do internships or whatever job you have to do that's temporary. It might be people who sit in a room when you're being interviewed, and um, you know when you walk out of there, they're the ones that are pushing for you, but The other people that's part of your social capital is your family and friends who are your family and friends who, you know, are there emotionally and psychologically keeping you sane and making you feel proud of yourself and reminding you that you can do this. So, you know, you might think you don't have any social capital because you don't know all the right people, but you have some. If you even have one person who's like, I believe in you and i'm here for you. that's a very powerful person in your life. so, you know, i just wanted to remind our listeners that as we as we build our social capital, right? as we go about our journeys, remember those little voices that were there that was like you can do it. i believe in you <laughs> because they're so important too. um so before we head out, i wanted to ask you, you know, what advice do you have for other immigrants or children of immigrants as they navigate their academic and career paths?
1: Yeah, definitely. I would say number one, don't give up as hard as it is. You will get through this. Just take it one day at a time and absolutely reach out to anyone who, who you do connect with, whether that's on a professional or a personal basis, go to those luncheons, go to those presentations, Um, if you are an introvert it's okay, write an email say, hey, I and it's okay to be honest and vulnerable. You know, I was a little nervous. I didn't want to approach you because you had too many people or what, whatever it may look like. Um, but I was so fascinated by pick one or two top things that really intrigued you about them or what they said. Um, could we set up some, uh, some time in the future, coffee, lunch, whatnot, um, so I can pick your brain or just get a little bit more information on this, whatever it may look like? Uh, yeah, it just keep pushing. Um, again, whether that's in your personal or academic setting, always ask questions. Uh, if someone doesn't know the answer, they're not willing to help or whatnot, that's okay. A no is okay. Just pivot and go to the next person. Um, And really leverage resources. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And really leverage resources around you like Steams, like Christina and myself, Uh, you know, we're here to help and encourage and assist is the best way that we can. So Mm -hmm. I would say that just don't give up, find your passion and go for it. Absolutely.
0: I I had to do the pivot thing. So I'm like a big friends like fan. So whenever I hear the word pivot, I immediately think of that sofa scene. But anyways, (laughs) So, um, so what's next for you? What are your career goals and plans?
1: Yeah, So right now I am absorbing as much as I can from where I'm at. I have thought about medical school. I don't know the feasibility of that now, but it's still an option. Um my 10 year goal at one point was to open a community health center in Ecuador. I'm still playing with that idea. So we'll wow. see. We'll see.
0: <laughs> Those are some big, big goals. And I think you can achieve all of them, actually, based on how you've already like <laughs> done your life. But um, that's awesome. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and hear your story. I mean, David was just like, "You have to talk to my sister. She's awesome. She's wonderful." And I'm like, "Well, David, you're she's awesome, your so I'm sure your sister is too." Huh? <laughs> you're no, like, like, she's she's just, like Not all sibling relationships are like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, like I I have huge respect for David and and so when he was just like, "You should talk to my sister. She's got like really like so much like to say and she's like amazing and he has so much respect for you. So I'm so glad that we're able to do this. Um, And to our listeners, we'll have resources about, you know, FAFSA, about Pell Grants, all these things that we talked about today on our website. And remember we're all on our directory of steeminists. Maria's on there. I'm on there. This is how you start reaching out. So uh, please check out our website and we'll see you all next week. Steam the Podcast is brought to you by RSS.com. We're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T. Badri, Naomi Phillip, Emily Chu, and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio and original music is by David James Pugo. If you like STEAM the podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to STEAM the podcast on RSS.com community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources and our directory of STEAMinists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.